Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Ray Zimmer. I'm Sam the Super Listener. And I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, we're going to review Jeff Buckley's 1994 album, Grace. So Ray, this album is your pick to review, so how did you discover Jeff Buckley and Grace? Um, I remember hearing about Buckley in the 90s when he was like one of the up-and-coming artists that Rolling Stone was always going on about, like him and Freddie Johnson and some of the other guys. Uh, the next time he came up on my radar was around 97 when he died. I remember thinking that sounded tragic. He was, he was like relatively young and seemed kind of on the rise. Um, I was in the band called Wednesday when I was in college, and the lead singer, Mimian, um, played me like a lot of his stuff. And she played me Everybody Here Wants You, which is like the first song I ever heard by him. And I don't, it's off of, uh, I think it's sketches of Farewell to My Sweetheart, The Drunk. And uh, he was kind of a, I knew him as a folky, but the song he was singing it sounded to me like it could have been written for Usher. So I was like, what, what the hell is this all about? So um, you could definitely tell the dude had like pipes. Uh, a few years later, I was borrowing a compilation video that MTV put out for like 120 minutes with Matt Pinfield. And uh, the video for Grace came on and I was instantly hooked. The guy sounded like a mutant hybrid of Robert Plant, Chris Cornell, Freddie Mercury, and Blind Willie McTell. So I went out to Strawberries in Pittsfield, which is right next to the uh, Stop and Shop or uh, no, the price chopper. Yep. And I found the album in like the bargain bin for like five bucks. I grabbed it and the rest has been history. All right. Sam, how about you? Man, I honestly don't remember the first time I heard uh, Jeff Buckley. I'm guessing that it was later on. I don't, he wasn't on my radar when he came out, man. I was into pumpkins and uh, Jane's addiction and stuff. And I, I was doing my own thing. I think uh, I wouldn't have, like gotten it then anyway and later on my when my mom uh, before my mom died a few years ago she uh she loved hallelujah you know she was the devout catholic and that was a <laughs> was a jewish song kind of anyways um so i remember her loving that song and uh just in passing you know i'd heard you know she would have it playing and i always thought it was pretty i did, had no idea who it was and then i hell oh man I, honestly i think a few years ago listen to Pandora or something and uh it came across uh Grace I think was the first uh, the second song I heard was in Hallelujah and uh I dug it and then I just kind of through osmosis kind of listened to it I haven't I hadn't heard all the uh songs on the record uh, before this week okay Lou I couldn't name you one Jeff Buckley tune before this the only exposure I'd ever had to Jeff Buckley was one of my friend's wacky older sisters that was obsessed with him. Uh, that was enough to keep me away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> until now, I was under the assumption that Jeff Buckley was for manic depressive whack jobs with daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, prior to researching for this podcast, I, I'd only vaguely heard of Jeff Buckley. I, I knew this album was supposed to be a classic and that he died young and not much else. 
And then, Ray, you've always said you wanted to review this album. I'm pretty much almost from the time when you came on board the podcast. So this episode's been a long time coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but as far as the music, yeah, but as far as the music goes, I'd never heard a single note from Jeff Buckley until I had to get ready to do this show. And that's it for me, too. Now I'm going to give you some basic facts about this record. And I don't need to check my facts. I use Wikipedia. Grace is the first and only studio album by American singer-songwriter Jeff Buckley, released on August 23, 1994, by Columbia Records. It was produced by Andy Wallace and was recorded from late 1993 to 1994 at Bearsville Studios, Woodstock, New York. It reached number 149 on the Billboard 200 chart and is certified platinum by the RIAA. And here's the musician's lineup card. We've got Jeff Buckley on vocals, guitar, keyboards, dulcimer, and percussion. Mick Grandal on bass. Loris Holland on organ. Matt Johnson on drums, percussion, and vibraphone. Misha Masood on tabla. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Gary Lucas on magical guitarness. Michael Ty on guitar. And Carl Berger on string arrangements. All right, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We begin things with Mojo Pin, written by Jeff Buckley and Gary Lucas. If only you come back to me Feel it at my side Wouldn't need no Mojo Pin Keep me satisfied Ray, what do you think? Wow. Um, starts off with that feedback and harmonics, and then, bam, you get this falsettos, like, ooh, start. And it's weird and androgynous sounding. Chris Cornell, who, like, I think he was the executive producer of his posthumous album, said that Buckley had the gift for making beautiful music that made you feel just a tad bit uncomfortable. And uh, I can kind of feel that <laughs> when I hear this song. I like it. I like, I like how it starts out. But you got that kind of like sustained kind of ooh thing going on. You got kind of really pretty, for lack of a better word, alternating C major and A minor arpeggios that's kind of finger picked. Um, the first verse is kind of like a subdued, almost whisper like quality to the vocals. And I love how he goes from singing Black Beauty, I Love You So, right back into the intro with the O's. But, but the way it kind of comes in just kind of ties them together nicely. Uh, the second run at the chorus. We get answered by this odd bullfight chord progression. And then around 356, we get this banshee-like sustained note that just kind of hangs there. And then it trails off, kind of like a, a jazz singer might kind of attempt doing something like that. And when we get to the final chorus, JB is in full rocker mode. The guitars crank, his voice gets raspier, and the song just kind of goes out with almost like the same way it came in. So I think it's a pretty solid opener. Sam. Well, uh, I agree. Uh, I, I love this song. I love the way it comes in, and uh, it's different immediately. And uh, the harmonics and the, and the falsetto comes in. It's this really cool, chimey guitar sound that um, we'll repeat throughout this. He's a telly guy, so that's mm-hmm. good. And, uh, man, I, I really dig it. Um, I looked up 
what a mojo pin was and kind of dug into it. And apparently he was in love with a black girl. And then, uh, and it changes, it keeps changing, you know, after that, you know, it goes in finally into the song which beautifully, by the way, but then it changes to another song and then another song and then another song, but seamlessly and, and cleverly does this. And then when, uh, what Ray was just saying, when it goes, I really love that part, man. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, this guy is a uh, pretty smart, um, or at least creative in, in a way that I really dig. And, uh, and how the fuck does the guy sing like that? Like that note that Ray was just saying, I had never heard anything like that before hearing. I mean, I've heard people copy this guy and that's what I've gotten into that stuff too. I'll get into later, but a lot of people have copied this, uh, or his style, I think. And then when they go, then when it ends, you know, it's more anger and intensity and it, and it, the whole song brings you up and then down and then back up intentionally. He's he's screwing me. He's screwing with me, I think, but in a really cool way. I, I, I dig this song. Yeah, I know. Prior to this, like the the for me, the benchmark for being able to like a really cool fucking rock vocalist was the note that uh, Bruce Dickinson holds in fucking um, uh, "Hallowed Be Thy Name" right before they go into like the heavier part from the intro. That that's got to go for like what. 40 seconds or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely up there. And this, I think that's probably on parallel to what he, this guy can do too. Lou, what do you think? I think the, the gold standard for that note would have been, um, queen of the Reich. Mm, the, there you go. Oh yeah. Good you point. Know, is, you know, yeah, that that's immediately when I thought I was like, well, what was the benchmark for that? And it was, yeah, it was that. Um, I spent the first part of this song wondering if it was an intro to, or an actual song. He starts to sing, and then the weird little disturbing munchkins weaving left and right in the channels. That sounds pretty chipping. The 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 lollipop kids. I don't know what they were saying. <laughs> Chipmunks in there, and um, the wash of sound kind of. Magic carpets you up and he lilts as he lilts. It's the very, very lilty vocals. Um, there's a lot of tension in it that never releases. Um, it's halfway creepy. I'm, I'm not having fun. Uh, <laughs> at the end, it gets more aggressive. Uh, it sloshes back into that wash and then back into the tension again. That, but it, it never really releases. It never, you get. The, the little munchkin voices are it, it's scary. <laughs> I don't feel good at the end of this. And he does the uneasy feeling very well. Uh, he said it before that he could, he could definitely, what was it? I, I forget. He doesn't do feeling good. Very good. He he does uneasy, you know, quite well. It, it's all I got. It's some. Not I agree with you, man. Time, that yes. whole, there, there's never a resolution. I mean, there's a couple tracks yeah. where you're going to get like an actual solid resolution, but he likes to leave you with the juicy dangler. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what, wait, wait, what are you doing? What's, what's happening here, man? So, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way you do, Lou. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. <laughs> holy fuck that's all i heard when i first listened to this and my first thought was oh no is this gonna be a tori amos thing for me am i just gonna hate this shit oh no but i hung in there 
And this thing ended up growing on me considerably. So the main thing we got to address is the voice, which I just imitated horrendously. Because when you get down to it, it's Buckley's primary instrument and what his music revolves around. And it's almost hard to describe his voice. It can go from like a quiet murmur to a banshee wail, occasionally making huge, unexpected melodic leaps and turns that make me think of something like early Joni Mitchell. And it betrays a depth of emotion and vulnerability that's a rare trait. It's we, We're going to say this. I'm going to say this all podcast. You even brought it up right away, Ray. It's unsettling at times. It almost makes me uncomfortable. We're all uncomfortable listening to this. How, how do you enjoy this? This particular song's got an unusual structure. It has these soft, dreamy, psychedelic sections with guitar magic. Maybe that's where the munchkins come in from Buckley and Gary Lucas that suddenly shift into loud rock passages with crunchy guitar and Matt Johnson's bombastic drums. And there are little subtle keyboards on this that almost float below the surface, making a blurry soundscape that snaps into focus when the hard rock slams in. Now, I read that the lyrics were inspired by a dream of a black woman that the narrator desires, and it seems that he compares his obsession with her to being addicted to drugs. Buckley sounds like he's in real pain. The drugs are not wiping his memory of her. Don't want to weep for you. I don't want to know. I'm blinded, tortured. The white horses flow. The memories fire. The rhythms fall slow. Black beauty, I love you so. Now, I don't know what I was expecting when I first listened to this album, but it sure as shit wasn't this. But now it's come to be a track that I look forward to hearing. It's pretty unique for an opener. This song was originally released as a live track on an EP Buckley released before this record, Live at Shanae. The next track is the title track, Grace, written by Jeff Buckley and Gary Lucas. Sam, your thoughts? Um, I had heard this song before, and uh, this is um, one of the few songs I'd heard on the record. And I've, I've always liked this song. And, uh, dude, Ray, I know you're going to mention this, but right before the second verse, that that, that uh, little riff, that that little math rock riff that he's going sliding up and down with the hammer-ons, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm trying to think. Right for the second verse? I think it's for the second verse. That's what I wrote down. Anyways, this you'll you'll get to it, I'm sure, man. But it's really cool, and uh, I love the uh, later in the song. Uh, I love the harmonized oohs and ahs, and the, that this voice soaring over it. It's fucking beautiful, man. It's and then the song gets happy again. He's throwing a lot at me here, but I fucking love his voice, man. I really do. I, I dig this song too. Lou, this is a little better. Uh, it's a driving, punctuated rhythm. Well, at first, that arpeggiated thing that he does goes into this driving rhythm that carry the lilting vocals that I really can't grab a hold of. They're so breathy. I, I, I just don't give a shit about them. That's I, I can't great. It, it's just something's not grabbing me yet. The guy is really starting to remind me of that character in the comedy central show, uh, drawn together. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. It was the spoof on the survivor type reality done with this depraved 
classic cartoon stereotypes. Yeah, it was animated. Remember Xander, the <laughs> hypersensitive, effeminate video game sexual yeah. link you know the legend of zelda <laughs> final fantasy spoof that's always off to save his girlfriend in the little green tights with the matching boots <laughs> and all that <laughs> <laughs> i gotta see the show now oh it's it's, yeah, fucking awesome. it's hilarious <laughs> anyway the the strummy music swirls up into that storm of instrumentation that Mr. Buckley is cooing and wailing, caterwauling and crescendos to a vocal display that actually would make Tom York from Radiohead proud. <laughs> Another okay. band I don't understand. Uh, this has got to be where emo comes from. That screaming crescendo that he does at the end. I mean, it's rather it, it is impressive, uh, but it sounds like he caught his dick in a zipper. <laughs> that's what i do i don't know about anybody else I, I hope he's okay i mean by the end he seems to calm down so he must have gotten it out. <laughs> the downside of foot pajamas <laughs> oh, damn. ray i i think i know it because lou lou mentioned and i now, now i know what you're talking about sam you're talking about that f minor arpeggio in the beginning that part yeah in the g minor part yeah I, this is this is actually the first song that really got me into him um you've got that intro then you get this kind of like cool it's like a d major followed by a d alternating d major seven kind of a deep chord based riff with this kind of bluesy affirming mm, in the background uh, uttered by Buckley, and I always liked that. Uh, the verse is—it's kind of a weird chord progression. It, it's like—I don't know how to describe it. I mean, there's probably theoretically a way to describe it that it's just way out be, outside of my wheelhouse. But I always thought it was is kind of odd sounding. Now, for years, and of course, I'm—I'm being lazy. I didn't actually look up the lyrics to this one song. So years, I've wondered what he's actually saying. Is he saying waiting to find or wait in the fire? He could be singing "Eat at Waffle House," and I could. It would still sound dope to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever he's singing, you can hear that. There's like a double track vocal and a higher octave, which sounds really cool. Uh, he almost has like a funny Mark Boland style vocal vibrato going on. And if you look at like video clips of uh, his father and like some of the stuff from like on the Mystery White Boy tour, they do this thing where they rapidly shake their head to get that weird kind of spooky vibrato effect. At around the three minute, 15 second mark, we get this falsetto melody by JB that is supported by these spooky background vocals that sound right out of a 1940s Tin Pan Alley pop hit. The final verse section, JB goes in full throttle with his plant meets Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan vocal styling. If you've ever heard that song, In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, that's that like guy like doing the quali singing in the background. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Buckley did, I think, some studying with him, too, or at least hung around him. I don't know if he was just a hanger on or something like that, but he was big time into Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. Um, you can almost hear like urgency and fear in the vocals. Like, you know, I don't want to fucking die, but I'm not afraid to go. But uh, no, I don't know what's going to happen here. I love how the song goes out with that eerie double vocal melody. It doesn't leave, once again, Lou, it doesn't leave anything resolved at all. You're just kind of left hanging there. And uh, that seems to be like his, uh, his trademark. So, yeah, dude, I fucking love this track. Uh, incidentally, Ray, there's only one JB, and it ain't Jeff Buckley. James Brown? By the way. Uh, Jack yeah. Black, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's JB's property. It's <laughs> okay, so as baffled as I was originally by the first track, when I heard this, I was like, whew, all right. 
It's based on an instrumental song Gary Lucas wrote called Rise Up To Be, and it's got that jangly main riff, and the vibe of that makes me think of R.E.M., and I fucking love R.E.M., so I took right to this song. There's some melodic bass in the verses from Mick Grandal, and Matt Johnson's drumming's got a loose, easy swing to it, and there are strings that sort of glide in the background, but they add to that unsettling feel of the track. There we go again. There's an underlying darkness that's really reflected once again in the vocals. And speaking of vocals, I dig the melodies Buckley comes up with, but as we reach the climax of the track, he unleashes the whales and he almost sounds unhinged, like he's going off the rails and he can't stop himself. I read the lyrics were inspired by Buckley saying goodbye to his girlfriend at the airport on a rainy day, and they are about a guy who is able to face his own mortality because he's found true love and it puts him in a state of grace, which, when you think about how his life ended, it lends a somewhat spooky air over the song when you put it in that context. I mean, consider this line, and I feel them drown my name, so easy to know and forget with this kiss, I'm not afraid to go, but it goes so slow. What the actual fuck? I really do dig this song, and it was the first single from the album that reached number 91 in Australia. (laughs) The following track is Last Goodbye, written by Jeff Buckley. Lou, what do you say? It starts out sounding like Zeppelin, doesn't it? Cool bass riff breaks into, dare I say it, a normal song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's down in a normal register now. He's singing about dying love. And I can't seem to place where I've heard this hook before. And then it hits me and I start singing along. And I don't want the world to see me. (laughs) They don't understand. He ripped off the Goo Goo Dolls? Now I can't get the Goo 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 Dolls out of my fucking head. (laughs) Oh. So why don't you slide, Lou? Why don't you slide? (laughs) Especially with the cello in the background, right? I mean, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous song. It is. Um, again, he ends the song sounding like he hit his toe on the bed frame. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ray. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So it starts off with that kind of spooky ass slide part played on an open tuned guitar. Uh, Buckley played in a lot of weird alternate tunings. There's a song called Vancouver, which I think is like an open D7 or some goddamn thing. I used to have the Buckley songbook and it had it listed in there. Um, some of that comes from like his Delta Blues influence. He was big into like Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson. I think like I even mentioned Blind Willie McTell. Um, and actually another part of it came from Joni Mitchell. He said it was like a huge influence on him growing up. I like his vocal delivery on the verse sections. Actually, relatively histrionic free compared to the first two songs. Not that I don't like the histrionics, I do, but this one is like loose. It's kind of more straight ahead. This is just a solid vocal melody. I like how they get just like a little bit heavier at like the 1 minute 53 mark before he comes back in. The strings at the 2 minute 22nd 
section are I think those are fucking gorgeous. And for me, they like give the song like a happy cashmere feel. Like if cashmere wasn't like ominous, this would be like the uh, complete opposite of that. Hmm. Um, I always love the scream that leads right into the "Did you say no? This can't happen to me." How it just kind of like fades in and just cuts really fucking in your face. Again, the song ends in a way that's not resolved in any way, but I love it. I can't tell if it's a banjo or a toy fucking piano at the end, but uh, it just kind of like, it's another thing. It just like leaves you dangling. You don't, there's nothing, there's not an ending to the song. It's, well, yeah, that's really all I got. I was, I was going to say, it's like a lot of this, the first side of David Bowie's low is like that too, but I don't think that was like an intentional thing. I just think that's his, his style. Sam. Well, that's another good song uh, to slide uh, with a bass intro. Um, it's really cool. And I, I don't know why you guys haven't mentioned it yet, but it reminds me of The Cure, like Blast The Cure and, and sounds just like The Cure for a, for a few measures even. And it sounds like 90s as fuck, man. This is a nice <laughs> – but nothing in the 90s sounded like this um, that I remember at the time. Anyways, the, the lyrics are so cool. I mean, these this guy is a, a really talented lyricist, man. And uh, this is maybe the nicest breakup song I've ever heard. And I, I did think that uh, about the Goo Goo Dolls, you know, loose old thunder here. But <laughs> I'm glad they could have went that way easily, right? But I'm glad he didn't. I'm, and I'm glad Buckley didn't sing a Goo Goo Dolls song. And I'm glad the Goo Goo Dolls didn't sing a Jeff Buckley song because um, it would ruin it. Both of them for me, <laughs> but uh, I, and like like Ray said, you know, I love it when he does something that you don't expect. I mean, I, I guess I like musicians like that, like that, like you know, one we're going to cover soon, and uh, like when he leaves you hanging, like at the end of this song, I, I really dig it, man. That, three in a row of great songs for me. This was originally titled Unforgiven and had a more straightforward rock feel. And here it begins with that faded and blurry slide guitar intro that leads into a more typical alternative rock tune. Very 90s, like you said, Sam. It's got the strummed acoustic guitars that are in the four, backed by strummed clean electric guitars. And the bass line features prominently and the strings fills out the sound and they swell at times for emotional support. They can actually be keyboards maybe, but I'm not sure. I think they're actual strings. Once again, the music relies on Buckley's voice and melodies to carry it, and he comes through again. And I appreciate how he comes at a melody from unexpected angles, though I gotta say, his big emotional wails are starting to get to me, and this is only the third track. The lyrics are pretty self-explanatory. It's a breakup song. He's embracing her for the last time, though the words are well chosen, and Buckley is able to imbue them with a quiet emotional intensity that rises to the big whales as it truly sets in. This isn't what he wants, but he knows that if they stay together, he'll only make her cry. This was the second single that in early 2005 reached number 19 on the U.S. Billboard Alternative Airplay Chart. Whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> They're digging. <laughs> you know, it's like I always when I think of those those charts, like because I was a huge Rolling Stone addict when I was a kid. They they always had like the end of Rolling Stone. They would like break down like you know what was like for certain categories. So it'd be like you know fucking top selling college albums or something like that. <laughs> and after the end, I think they got they ran out of the fucking steam with that, and so they just did start doing regional things like the fucking top ten selling albums in Sheboygan. You know. <laughs> <laughs> The next track is Lilac Wine, written by James Shelton. Lilac wine is sweet as 
and headache Like my love Like one I feel How about this one, Ray? Personally, I think this song is awesome. The chords are pretty simple, and sometimes all they do is just kind of answer the vocal melody, which is kind of nice to have a call response between like a solo artist and his instrument. <laughs> Buckley sounds really fucking otherworldly on this track. Sometimes he sounds like a singer-songwriter from like the 70s. Sometimes he sounds like an 1800s singer versed in the bel canto tradition. Not quite male, but not quite female at the same time. I know he didn't write it, but I mean, he can sell it. And who hasn't gotten shit-faced pining over somebody that they've loved and lost? I think he's really selling the lyrics on this track. And I think uh, yeah, as far as like cover songs that he's done on this album, this is probably, I'd say this was one of my favorites. Sam? I've heard this song before uh, by Nina Simone. I thought that it was a Nina Simone song. I didn't know that it was written by somebody else. I just knew it. But, and usually songs that are sang by Nina Simone, I'm a, I'm a fan of her, so it, uh, uh, you know, people fuck them up because it's, they don't find they don't get grab the feeling. But I think this version is maybe better than Nina Simone, and I hope I don't get any fucking hate for that. I just I just like it better. I think and that damn tone of this fucking Telecaster he's playing is uh, out of this world, man. And there's a lot of guitar nerds that love this guy. Um, that's not his voice, not just his voice, man. I mean, he, this dude is a fucking really good guitar player. And I really like, and I would really love these words too. When he does pick a cover, you know, he he uh, he chooses a really good one. Um, and this these words are like Hetty, you know, like Hetty, like my love. It's like you know, I would like Hetty, like my blowjob. Love equals blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> and I dig it, man. And I, I love head, and I love wine, and so, and lilacs. Are, I like your fucking. Okay, we've definitely got the M on this one. <laughs> 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 I really like it, man. The four in a row are all good for me. I'm loving this record. Lou, uh, I I can't shake the the Freddie Mercury vibe that this song's got. Um, it also reminds me of Crazy Mary by well, Victoria Williams originally wrote it, but Pearl Jam did a pretty good cover of it in the beginning, it's still got this e uneasy tension that just never gets released. And it's, you know, I've been edging what for a half hour now <laughs> <laughs> uh, since we're in the M. <laughs> um, this whole record so far has been this off balance feel that just, it, it's got this off kilter feel to it. That doesn't put me in a cozy place at all. This song was written in 1950 by American 1930s Broadway actor, composer, and writer James Shelton and was recorded by numerous artists such as Eartha Kitt, Nina Simone, like you said, Sam, Elkie Brooks had a very popular version, Jeff Beck, and Miley Cyrus, among many others. Here, Buckley's cooing voice floats over dreamy guitar chords, lightly brushed drums, and airy keyboards that lend the music an almost hymn-like quality. Buckley dials back on the vocal histrionics and just kind of lets the melody glide along, showing that, yes, he can show some restraint when it's called for. 
The lyrics are about a person, in this case a man, fresh from a breakup and drinking homemade wine made from a lilac tree. I didn't even know you could make lilac wine. Getting drunk and reliving the love of the past relationship. Buckley gives a good performance, but uh, I don't know, man. This one just passes me by like a springtime breeze, man. It just doesn't do much for me. Uh, uh, I could pass on this one. The following track is So Real, written by Jeff Buckley and Michael Ty. I remember the smell of the fabric of your simple city dress. Oh, that was so real. Oh, that was so real. Oh, that was so real. Sam, what do you think? Man, well, at this point, I, th- I think I'm needing a break, you know? Um, and at the beginning of the song, man, I was like, oh, man. I, I don't know if I'm like ready. Okay, maybe I'll skip it, but I stick with it. I, because we we're doing this podcast, I would have st- skipped this so bad. But around two minutes and eighteen seconds in, where it gets like really trippy and dissonant, like trippy, like old Pink Floyd trippy, like where they just start playing with their pedals and shit, like Radiohead or something. And then at two eighteen, these cats start uh, mating in uh, this dude's amp. And it goes, meow, meow, meow. And I, you know, and I was like, wait a minute, there's something to this. And so then he comes up to the mic and whispers, I love you. And I, I know that he got laid after the song. Well, whoever, <laughs> I just know this. I mean, I know this, this guy fucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but after that, he gets these damn chords. He's these, uh, this on an acoustic, I think. It's like really distant. It's like a horrible sound, but he makes it fit into his the scale or whatever he's doing there, the mode. I don't know, and I uh, and I really like that. And and again, like I think this would be a, been a good Deftone song. I, and I was wondering uh, what you guys thought of that. I could see that actually. Lou, what do you think? Remember that uneasy feeling I was talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Still here? Yeah, it's back. Uh, I'm starting to get worried for my own safety. (laughs) I'm going to start cutting myself if this keeps up. (laughs) I don't know if he and Tom York had, you know, were friends or if they listened to each other, but the the influence is there. I don't know where, you know, it's back and forth because they were just about from the same time. From the weird feedback climaxes that between the heavy, wet reverb, chord washes, all the off-key wailing that fits the mood of the track. It does make you want to cry sometimes. Um, (laughs) Days after it, this song is in my head that, you know, the first time I heard it. And again, I had to soldier through this album a couple of times to get to, you know, where I am with it today, which we'll find out later. Um, maybe it was the gloomy day, but I could not shake this haunting melody that is this song. I can't explain it. It's almost satisfying. Like the guy on the State Farm commercial, you know, holding the collar <laughs> on the fishing pole, teasing that lady. Oh, I got your dollar. That's it, man. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> Sorry. Stop laughing, man. You're making me laugh. Shit. <laughs> okay. We can take a walk. <laughs> Let's take a lap. Let's take a lap. <laughs> <laughs> all right Woo! all right so anyway um you know actually lou uh the tom york connection is definitely fucking there um have you heard the song uh fake plastic trees yes all right so exactly story has it york said they're in the studio recording the bends they're trying to record that song and they do like fucking out of seven or eight takes of the song and he just is not nailing it and I'm, I don't know how much of this is self-mythology, how much of this is actually true on York's part, but he said they went to go see a Buckley concert that night. And like he said, everybody in the fucking audience was like fucking either weeping or just fucking gaga-eyed, right? And he was like, he said he was equally moved by it. And he like told the guys to go back to the studio. And supposedly that the version of fake plastic trees that you hear on the bends is the vocal take he recorded after going to the Buckley concert. I'd believe it. Yeah. That's how yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. So it's 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 definitely there. I mean, I I think, I mean, I I, I think technique wise, I mean, you know, one guy's got a pretty full toolbox, the other guy has you know a micrometer and some shitty channel locks. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it still works. You know, for for yeah, Radiohead yeah. for sure. You know, I, I, the string. I'm, you know, yeah, <laughs> I fucking love Radiohead, so I, I'll never <laughs> complain about that. But yeah, I can hear exactly what you're talking about connection wise. This is actually one of my favorite songs of all fucking time. Um, I know Michael Ty gets a co-write in, in this, and if uh, you watch the Mystery White Boy video, that's like him like doing that intro. Um, and I love the intro. It's moody, there's dynamics and dissonant chords. Then the chords for the verse come in. And I, 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 Sam, do you want to sound like an acoustic guitar? I think he is playing it on an acoustic guitar. Yeah, those, uh, two, those, those two chords, it's almost reminded me at first that we're in you know, the same kind of shape as like uh, for those about to rock, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like on, the, on, the, on the B and the, on the, the E and the B string, the first and second strings. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's an E minor chord, but it's, it's got that weird kind of flatted fifth in there, too. Yeah, yeah um, it's, it's the devil chord. Yeah, exactly. No, that's fucking Black Sabbath. <laughs> Black Sabbath. And I actually, I like how it like kind of leaves you with that unsettled con dissonance, and then goes right into like more of a consonant sounding D minor chord. And the the actual meter of the song goes from duple meter to a triple meter, which is like you know, for those who don't know out there in music land, it's just like that kind of swaying waltz kind of a rhythm. And the chords Buckley's playing kind of reminded me of like. Uh, Satriani's work on this piece called Brother John that he was on the Not of This Earth album. It's also kind of Hendrixy too. Satriani song? Yeah, I know that song. That yeah, was... yeah. It's kind of that weird, like, uh, the, the guitar strings are sound like, you know, two guys in a Gregorian chant group. Um, as far as, like, Buckley's voice, it's got, like, this kind of damaged and fragile quality in the verse section. But when he gets that fucking chorus, oh, my God, the vocal melody is fucking amazing, and he just fucking knocks it out of the park. It's full, but oddly eerie like a ghost in some shitty regional theater house um <laughs> and kind of like we and this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout this album i find it eerily prophetic when he talks about the nightmare that pulled him in and sucked him under total you can't like ignore that when you you know acknowledge the guy yeah. drowned in the fucking river 
And then from a two thousand, from the two minute, nineteen minute mark to about two forty seconds, uh, we get this weird noise rock interlude. The cats and the amplifiers that Sam talked about with these weird kind of Hendrixy style atmospherics. And then it goes into the course into the I love you part, um, which is kind of cool, you know, to go through all that. And then it goes to that. Uh, the outro chorus starts out. It was previously done, but then it kind of takes a directional change where the vocal melody ends in an unsettling note that doesn't quite seem like it fits once again, but it fits with the chord being that are being played. Like, that last attack doesn't sound like yeah, it just fits, but note. it does. Yeah. yeah. And you can really hear a Chris Cornell influence in his vocals uh, as the intensity gets amped up and amped up. The final note actually seems to resolve in the, uh, the movement of the piece for the first time in this song. Like, <laughs> yeah, that part, like, the end, like, oh my God, it's a fucking yeah. happy ending. It's, you know, where the fuck did that come from? But yeah. in that in itself, as the song being as spooky as it is, and then it ends on a fucking happy note. I, I <laughs> love the fucking irony of that, man. So yeah, no, this, this is one of my all-time favorite songs That's ever. Cool. And this is the simplest song, uh, the simplest lyric song. I mean, do you think you just throw it together uh, lyrically? Because most of it's, uh, you know, so real, so real, so real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> the chorus, anyway, yeah. So, yep, I dig this one. And it's largely because of that main riff that guitarist Michael Ty brought with him. And I, I think you mentioned this, right? It goes off rhythm, right? It switches to 3-4. You know, dun dun at the end of each 4-4 verse, and it sounds cool as shit. I love that part. Ty and Buckley strum cleanly together for this, and then they up the urgency in the chorus where the tempo increases just a slightly, and Buckley goes into a near yodel, proclaiming, oh, that was so real, yodel <laughs> There's a brief dissonant solo of sorts that works well, and then, of course, towards the end of the track, Buckley sounds more intense. His voice rises. It goes all over the place. It's what he does, but he's feeling it. He's having a nightmare of love. He loves you, but he's afraid to love you, and the music reflects this nightmare scape. There's a sense of the surreal to this track that's at once engaging and once again unsettling. We've seen this for every fucking song, but it hits the mark. This is good shit. This was the album's third single that apparently did jack shit on the charts. And incidentally, Ray, uh, I'll take Tom York's uh, micrometers in his toolbox. And I, 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 I like him. He's, 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 I, I like him as a singer. Channel too. locks, yes. Yeah, channel locks, yeah. One of those little, like, glasses case screwdrivers. <laughs> Secret weapon of hair metal singers. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys ever listen to The Darkness? Yes. Oh, that's dude. The, um, I fucking love The Darkness. Yes. I'll be damned. I fucking love that band. <laughs> the next track is Hallelujah, written by Leonard Cohen. Well, I heard there was a secret chord. That David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this The fourth, the fifth The minor fall and the major lift The baffled king composing Lou, you like this one? Yes. Uh, I've heard Chris Cornell doing this, and it's amazing. 
and so is this. The recording quality of this album, of this whole album, is top-notch. I'll give it that. Uh, I do appreciate an album that I can hear the sound quality in a good pair of headphones or on a great set of speakers. The song is perfectly executed. He does have a good voice. Uh, he's a dynamite player, even if it's not totally my cup of tea. Uh, I found myself singing this to myself in the yard <laughs> while the wind was blowing the other day, and I realized to myself, you're singing Jeff Buckley. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it, he's, he is an enormous talent. I, I will give him I can't deny You can't deny that he's not, and this song proves it. Ray. Uh, you know, this song has been played to death over the last few years. I've actually saw an article entitled, Yes, Hallelujah is Great, but Leonard Cohen had other songs that were better. Supposedly, Buckley found additional lyrics for this song on the, from the I'm Your Fan album, where John Cale recorded a version of this. Mm. Um, so I, I'm not sure where the additional vocals are, because I hate to admit it, I've never actually listened to the Cohen original. For years, I couldn't get the intro to chords right for this song, and then I was watching watching him live, and it turns out, and you know, a lot of guitarists out there don't appreciate it, he's got a capo on the fucking fifth fret, and so that's why he can do all those really kind of weird chord voicings on there. So if you're ever, ever interested in learning how to play this song, just capo up your fifth fret and just go to town. But uh, I gotta say, the intro is super moody, and I'm all about like mood, and so the intro definitely kind of s- sets the stage for the, how the song is going to go. The guitar arpeggios in the verse section have the kind of weird 50s rock vibe that I love, too. And let's say, I think not an exaggeration to say that Buckley really deified himself with the vocal performance on the song. It's funny because sometimes his voice takes on like a B. Arthur meets Catherine Hepburn kind of a quality. <laughs> but uh, for whatever reason, it fucking works, you know? <laughs> it's like Hallelujah! Like, <laughs> Hallelujah! Why, where's the cheesecake? Ma, go to bed. Where's Stanley's I once heard a sacred chord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Oh, uh, anyway. But uh, before I go, uh, Rufus Wainwright did a version of the song for the Shrek soundtrack. Um, he and Jeff kind of came up actually around the same time, like playing clubs in New York uh, City. And I guess Rufus would lecture him about playing at Shanae. I like Rufus and his music, but I prefer this version to, to Rufus's version. It's got a great little musical interlude at around four minute mark that lasts like a full minute, complete with an octave melody and more arpeggios and... Uh, yeah, I, as much as this song is overplayed, you can't fucking deny how great this rendition is. Sam. Man, uh, this is uh, one of my mom's favorite songs. I remember that. And um, a lot of people. Did you just mention deicide? What you just said, Ray? No, deified. He deified. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Very different thing. Okay. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh man this song is fucking beautiful Leonard Cohen's version is uh, probably the worst version you, you, could, you could hear so just don't yeah, agreed buy. yes it's terrible yeah I, I love this song uh, from way back you know um, for what, because it meant so much to mom I did a little deep dive on it a few years back and yeah Leonard Cohen had like 30 something verses to this song and he kept with it and changing it but nothing ever really fit 
he played a version live that Rufus Wainwright was maybe, I don't know if he attended the show or anything, but uh, he goes, and Rufus, by the way, I'll get to that in a second. Rufus was there and, uh, or something, and uh, he covered that song. Or I don't know for sure, but uh, Jeff Buckley's covering Rufus's version, right? We all in agreement on that one, right? I, I, I'm going to take your word for it. I'm pretty sure that Rufus's was first. I don't know for sure, though, man. One of one of them was first. Anyways, Rufus. Whenever I hear that that name, did you guys ever get the National Lampoons uh, the that yearbook thing? Yeah. It was a magazine. It was like a book. It was a uh, but it was from the National Lampoon, and it was like a high school yearbook from like the early sixties. No, I can't no. say they have, sir. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out. Okay, go ahead. I'm done. <laughs> oh, you're done? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, everybody's heard this song a million times. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. This is the most celebrated track on the album. It's the cover of the Leonard Cohen classic that's been interpreted by countless artists. But, but now, I read that Buckley's version is based on John Cale's arrangement, that spare arrangement, except Buckley's on guitar as opposed to Cale's piano. And you actually, there's a snippet of Cale's version in, in one of the Shrek movies. If, if I'm not mistaken, Buckley plays these dreamy, echoey arpeggios on the guitar, and that's all the instrumentation it really needs. It's that voice, man, that throughout the track that he goes through the gamut of his soft, whispery tone rising up through his higher register where, I mean, if you're not moved by the pure emotion of what he's singing, you don't have a pulse. The lyrics are brilliant, as most Leonard Cohen songs are. It's a look at love and heartbreak that's filtered through a glut of religious imagery, referencing David and King Saul, Samson and Delilah, and love itself as a quasi-spiritual entity that can fill you with near-sacred beauty or leave you cold and broken. Buckley's voice gently caresses the lyrics at points, and at others, he's pleading as if he's in agony. It's a bravura performance that took years before it was recognized as such. Much like this album, actually, it, it took quite a while to catch on, and now it's generally recognized as one of the greatest performances ever recorded. And I am moved by this myself. It deserves the accolades it gets, but if I'm being honest, I actually prefer the John Cale version. But that takes nothing away from this. This track was finally released as a single in 2007, 10 years after Buckley's death, and now it's a certified two-time platinum seller by the RIAA. The following track is Lover, You Should Have Come Over, written by Jeff Buckley. So I wait for you And I'll burn Will I ever see your sweet return Ray, let's have it. All right. John Mayer has called this one of the greatest songs ever written. I don't know about that. This is the same guy who gave us Your Body is a Wonderland. <laughs> I love it, though. You got in the cool accordion intro, kind of gives it like this weird kind of like you're sitting in Paris kind of a feel. It's got a great chord progression in the verse section. Uh, Buckley's vocal performance is pretty intimate sounding and kind of sums up that feeling of being lonely 
and horny. Let's just call it feeling hornly. <laughs> um, hornly? Hornly. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody's felt that at some point or another, you know? I'm feeling it right now. It happens right after a Domino's pizza and about half a six pack. (laughs) (laughs) The hornliness. Um, I like how the accordion comes back and after sometimes a man gets carried away section. Uh, The organ's a real nice touch. We get some gospel sounding background vocals. Um, Truth be told, the last two minutes of the song are a bit bombastic and drawn out for my taste, but I, I don't hate it. Um, so yeah, this is a good one. Sam. Um, I, I dig the song. I, I dig the uh, R and B feel it has. It's got a cool groove and I dig it, man. I don't skip it at all. Uh, actually lately I skip hallelujah more than I would skip this. Um, well this, this week I did. So, it's a good song. I don't know. It's not my favorite on a taker, but it's better than the one next one next. And there's a little, you know, the, the buildup is really cool. And the, there's a little hints of a guitar solo in there. I dig it. Uh, maybe he could have, I don't know. It's a good song. Go ahead. Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, that surprises me. Um, because I, well, Accordion ra- rarely makes it to rock records. First of all, let's let's put that out there. Um, I can't help thinking about the post-war dream or Two Sons in the Sunset from Pink Floyd's final cut for a second or two in the beginning. I think you took my superpower, sir. <laughs> <laughs> right? Did he's really good at setting the mood? Again, he's full of longing and regret uh, about losing someone because of mistakes he made. It's pretty deep. I appreciate the the Black Crows ish breakdown at about uh, what three and a half, three fifteen. I'm hearing Elton John in the chords as well as Black Crows. Uh, That's cool. I'm loving the Hammond organ in the background, um, and then there's that voice. <laughs> that <laughs> voice. I see where yeah. Muse and Justin yeah. Hawkins from the Darkness, like we were talking before, where they get their influence from. Um, besides Mr. Mercury, which they also, you know, he also draws from, um, he worshiped him along with Bowie. It seems like as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this tune. I like it a lot. So this has that weird intro that almost has like a Celtic folky feel to it. Then it transitions to a more standard acoustic guitar based rock ballad with some nice understated drumming that gets over with me, especially with the way Buckley sings it. He's using his soft, gentle voice, but he's not being precious, not too breathy. He's just singing plainly in the verses. But inevitably, the vocal pyrotechnics come out later in the track as the song reaches its climax and Matt Johnson gets to cut loose on the skins with some excellent fills. There are some gospel-tinged backing vocals that are accentuated by the organ played by Loris Holland that occasionally swells and has a welcome presence here. I really dig the organ. The lyrics were inspired by the breakup of Buckley and musician-actress Rebecca Moore and finds our narrator acknowledging the youthful mistakes he made and wasn't mature enough to recognize at the time. Now that he's older, he's full of longing and regret. It's never over for him. He sings, My kingdom for a kiss upon her shoulder, all my riches for her smiles. I dig those lyrics. 
This track is affecting. It's full of emotional depth, and it was covered by artists ranging from Jamie Cullen to, as you said, Ray John Mayer. And it, it must be weird because apparently Lou and I like a track better than you two. That's weird. <laughs> the next track is Corpus Christi Carol. It's a traditional arranged by Benjamin Britten. Sam, you like this one? No. You <laughs> <laughs> should have left it to Benji. Um, this is a skipper for me. I don't. I don't like. Uh, you know, whatever he was doing uh, was for himself. Am I giving you know props for putting it on the on the record and not taking this off instead of that other song we'll get to later? Anyways, there was a song that was supposed to have been not on this record. Have we gotten there yet? I tried to uh, um, forget her. Forget Her was supposed to be on this record, and So Real was uh, added. Okay, that's, all right. That's what happened, right? I, right? I think so. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think, yeah, 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 I think you're right. They should have left this off. They should have left Corpus Christi off. This is my, uh, um, what the fuck were you thinking track. It does not fit <laughs> to me at all. Um, I really don't like it, and I'm not angry at him for doing it because he can do whatever the hell he wants, but it sucks. <laughs> Lou, how about you? This took me forty exactly forty-five seconds to hate. <laughs> <laughs> it made my feelings hurt. <laughs> I couldn't wait for it to be over. I don't even care how well it was recorded. It made the back of my eyes hurt. <laughs> I feel like some of my life has been wasted. And even my dog is pissed at me now. <laughs> Ray. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, yeah, as it's mentioned before, this is uh, arranged by a Benjamin Britten, supposedly written by some English dude named Richard Hill in the fucking 1500s. Yeah, fuck both of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that said, I think there is this tendency among talented musicians to demonstrate that they can perform in almost any musical style. And they're not just, you know, locked into one style. Um, Buckley himself had a pretty rich musical education. I mean, he originally got into the, the, the field wanting just to be a guitarist. He went to the Musical Institute of Technology in uh, California, where he got exposed to Vorjak and Bartok. And I'm not surprised that he would be exposed to Benjamin Britten or, you know, any of those other guys and other kind of vocal pieces. I mean, the guy fucking lists, lists uh, Edith fucking Piaf as one of his main musical influences, for Christ's <laughs> sakes. All right. It's a technically talented kind of a performance, but honestly, it's not my favorite track on the album. So I'm going to say it's Raison and Press <laughs> Musical Pick. That was better than that. The song. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray gave a little bit of background about how this thing was written or not written. It's anonymous. 
But Buckley's version is based on English opera singer Janet Baker, a childhood friend of Buckley's, introduced him to it, and then he put this on the record as a thank you to that friend who introduced him to Baker's version of it. We get spacey, heavily reverbed, clean electric guitar, lightly strummed with ringing notes, and Buckley really reaching into his upper register in falsetto, giving this a ghostly feel to his performance. I read that the lyrics are a Christian allegory, but Buckley himself said it's a fairy tale of a falcon who takes the beloved of the singer to an orchard. The singer goes looking for her and finds her in a chamber weeping next to a bleeding knight and a tomb with Christ's body in it. I guess it's very open to interpretation, but I don't want to interpret anything as this one gets on my nerves real quick. 45 seconds, that sounds about right, Lou. I timed it. Nope, don't like this one. It blows. It is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. Oh, man. Oh, I think I like the Zimmer version better. My wife thought I was losing my shit because I had this on. And she, she comes in, she's like, what the fuck are you listening to? Blame the Zimmer kid. Zimmer! <laughs> Fucking Ray. <laughs> The penultimate track is Eternal Life, written by Jeff Buckley. Lou, how about this one? Holy cow. Okay. Where did this come from? That was like a Phil Rizzuto moment. I felt like I was at the money store. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I'd i like Jeff Buckley if he did more of like this. Uh, I would have been a Jeff, Jeff Buckley fan. I guess this is the day that his Prozac kicked in. Because <laughs> I like this. It's even got good lyrical content. Quit hiding behind your religion to justify your ugliness. Life's too short, too complicated for people behind desks and people behind masks to be ruining other people's lives on the basis of their income, their color, their class, their religious beliefs, their whatever. Uh, he delivers another screaming ending that lets me think that this guy would have made a pretty good hair metal singer. I want to smack someone. It took so long into the album to give me something actually like this. Um, I'd be pretty pissed off if I heard this first and then bought the whole record thinking that it was going to be all like this. <laughs> Great tune. Ray. Yeah, kind of to echo what Lou said, this is a rare bird on this album. It's the closest thing to hard rock on the entire album. I mean, supposedly, like, his background, like, before he went solo, was he, like, played in reggae bands and hair metal bands. So, I mean, I don't really get the gap between the two of them, but supposedly he ran the gamut. Um, what, you never heard Dred Zeppelin? <laughs> Him and Tortelvis? I remember <laughs> those guys. I remember those guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of cool. It starts out kind of quiet, and then bam, it just kind of blows up with that distorted bass and the weird guitar sounds. And like listening to that, and there's a Red Hot Chili Peppers song that kind of almost reminds me of it, too. I think it's um, 
It's can't not stop. by the way. It's I think it's um can't stop. No, not can't. I I want to say it's been around the world. That no, maybe that's not the one. Anyway, I digress. Um, but it's got a cool intro. It's kind of movie. Then bam, they just kind of nail you. Buckley's in full rocker mode now. You got some Robert Plant elements. You have some Chris Cornell elements. Um, as for the meaning, uh, Lou, you just nailed that quote out of the park. You stole my thunder, but I applaud you because uh, yeah, uh, it's a sentiment I can I can get on board with. Um, and I do like the vocal performance on this. Actually, I think uh, the whole band is, you know, pretty decent at this point. So, no, this is a it's a it's like a palate cleanser, I guess. Or in some cases, it may be a little bit of that extra um, sriracha that you needed. <laughs> Sam, well, this is the extra sriracha that I needed at this point in the record. You know, I, no matter how talented and and that you are with the pen or the guitar, you know, if you're doing this this well then why the fuck are you messing with that shit you did earlier <laughs> come on man that was a waste of space you could have put another song like this on this record and maybe i don't know what his intentions were maybe you know like uh you guys said for a friend or so but damn this would have been great man this is you lost some, was a missed opportunity in my opinion anyways this song is uh maybe my favorite song on the record um, I finally got a, a cool rock song, even though I already knew I wasn't expecting this. I'd never heard this song. And I was like pissed off. Just like, why the hell did I had never heard this song off this record? Because now I like it. I like the record even more. That's what I think about it, man. I think there should have been a couple more songs like that. The words are fucking excellent. The delivery is excellent. The band is uh, top notch. Like you guys have already said, of course. Well, much like Lou, my first thought when I heard this was, where the fuck did this come from? I mean, out of nowhere, Buckley turns into a grungy hard rocker with crunchy guitars, pounding drums, overdriven bass, and half-yelled, half-sung vocals. And fuck me sideways, it works. The music slams along, and Buckley actually sounds pissed off. The lyrics are full of anger towards racism, violence, and hatred. Now, the breakdown section does have strings and offers a quiet respite from that rage, but then the tune crunches back in and Buckley unleashes some screams that would make Chris Cornell proud. I read that musically, this was inspired by Led Zeppelin and other classic hard rockers that Buckley admired, and this showcases his versatility and willingness to borrow from any musical style, unlike the last track, like you said, Sam, This Works. This was released in live form previously on the Live at Shanae EP, and this version was the fourth and final single from the album. And that brings us to the final track, Dream Brother, written by Jeff Buckley, Mick Grondahl, and Matt Johnson. And you kiss on the lips of another Dream Brother with your tears got How about this last one, Ray? This is probably one of my favorite songs of all time as well. Um, I got a, a Buckley songbook as a gift when I was sent to me when I was over in Iraq. Uh, I spent like a lot of time behind the boxing ring at Abu Ghraib after I got on my shift, just playing this song after my shift at it. And I would just like 
play it over and over again among some other shit too. I didn't even have like really have guitar picks. I just had like, you know, these little things called pogs that they don't give you change in Iraq, but they give you these little fucking cardboard circles with like varying, you know, patriotic themes and shit like that. Holy I shit. Could, yeah. I that, that was a rage with the kids for like two months. <laughs> back yeah. in the 90s. <laughs> so there I am with my little fucking pog pick playing like the fucking intro to the song. Um, this is like one of those songs that continuously gives me goosebumps when I hear it to this day. You get these spooky string noises that sound like they came out of a 1980s movie about Vietnam. And then you get that killer guitar pattern. It's not quite major, but it's not quite minor. And I think there's some tabla drums playing in the background. I think you mentioned tablas in there early on in the introduction, Aaron. Mm -hmm. Buckley's voice has this really tired and haunted quality to it. I mean, it's the, for the subject of the song, there's one theory out there that, that I, I thought seemed plausible. The title Dream Brother may be a reference to Buckley's father, Tim Buckley, who wrote a song called Dream Letter about his son, Jeff. Buckley only met his father at one time when he was a kid. Um, Tim Buckley died of a drug overdose later on, but he abandoned his mother and Jeff when Jeff was like an infant. Uh, the theory goes that Buckley's friend, Chris Dowd, and I'm not sure if that's the guy from Fishbone or not. Isn't there a Chris Dowd? Yes, it is. For, it is him. Yes. Yeah. He had got his girlfriend pregnant and was going to leave her. Uh, with this theory, Jeff is basically saying to Dowd, hey, don't be a cock. My father abandoned me and my mom, and look what it's done to me. Tim is the one who left behind his name and made Buckley so old. For me, personally, I think as most people will do and when they hear a song, and like, like reference it to their own life. Um, I'm like the third Ray Zimmer in my family. My grandfather was Ray Zimmer, and then I had an uncle Ray Zimmer. And my grandfather was, by all accounts, and from what I saw, a physically brutal and narcissistic man who did a lot of damage to his sons, like my dad and my Uncle Ray and my Uncle Chris. Um, I don't know a lot about my Uncle Ray because he died like a few months before I was born. A uh, funny thing about that, um, I've, I've heard mostly like snippets about it from my dad, but the funny thing is uh, I was actually almost named Jedediah. <laughs> but <laughs> my mom thought it would be a nice gesture to let my grandfather have a namesake again. Um, yeah, knowing Jedi, what I Jedi for short? Is that a, <laughs> Jedi Zima. <laughs> Jedi Zima. <laughs> Knowing what I know now, though, I sometimes wish my parents named me Jedediah. I mean, I'm missing a front tooth, and I can play a few licks on the banjo. I'd be a good Jed. Um, <laughs> anyway, Papa and Uncle Ray left behind that name and all the fucking weirdness that goes with it, which is why I named my oldest son Frank and his brother Jack. Um <laughs> Plus, I was the oldest of a brood of five kids. Often I'd wish that I had an older sibling who could have kept an eye on me and kept me from turning into such a fucking goofball. So it would have been kind of cool to have an older brother. The chords and the chorus have always fucking grabbed me. The way they interact with this vocal melody really adds tension with this song. I love the vocal emoting that goes over the verse section at 2 minutes and 11 seconds. It sounds a lot, really fucking otherworldly. And this is another part of this album where you can hear the influence of Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. He's like that. He was a quali, Afghani quali singer. Which, and I think the quali singers are kind of, they're tied in with uh, Sufism, which is like, uh, it's like Islamic mysticism, where like, you know, there's a lot of chanting and trying to achieve a, a mystical state in this earthly plane. Um, kind of cool. The instrumental break at 2 minute and 51 seconds is fucking aces. It's got cool chords, a Jimmy Page-like string bend, a cool octave melody, and that slams back into the chorus. I love how the song goes out with the diminuendo verse section. It just kind of climbs back into the swamp where it came out of. 
Um, and once again, and this is not an original thought on my part, it was pointed out to me as I was reading, the part about sleeping in the sand while the ocean washes over is fucking really eerily prophetic. Mm-hmm. Or it was, you know, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. I'll let everybody else be the judge of that. Sam. Uh, <laughs> so much I can add to that. This song kind of tugged at me a little more than I had expected. I, you know, after the second or third time listening to it and then reading the words and listening to that, that detuned Middle Eastern thing that he's doing at the beginning, I was, I was already in at that. And, and then, but the tone from that telly, I'm sure it's a telly. Oh yeah, it is. It definitely is. If you watch mystery white boy, he's like all tellies and a couple of acoustics. Yeah, it's got so the tone is so fucking nice, man. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, perks my ears up. And so, uh, I dove deep into this song, man. And this is a, this is a damn good song and it's a damn good closer. Damn, man. It, there's three songs on here, four songs that, uh, really, really, really like. And this is one of them, man. I really love this song and I'll be uh, listening to, I had never heard this song before, uh, this podcast, uh, this, in the past few days. And I really love it. And I appreciate it, Ray. I love it, dude. Well, hey, I'm glad, man. I'm glad. Lou. What starts out as a sounding like a late career Blackie Lawless is going to come out of the shadows and start eating a turkey leg and screaming <laughs> torture. Uh, morphs into the spooky kind of miasma tinged navel gazer that as you know like the the smoke machines and the pregnant pauses that like waiting for the sun you know that yeah. that oh it's uh, i wish i would have did the morrison hotel because i fucking saw oh. um but but that's the same kind of tension 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 release you know yeah. it's oh it's it's fucking awesome this song has some structure and it feels like it's going somewhere. It's got dynamics, soft and loud, breaks and pauses. It's another good tune. I'll take it. So, Ray, I loved your analysis of this song. That was tremendous. I'm going to be swiping a bunch of what you said just because I can't, I can't remember it all. But So I apologize for that in advance. We return to an atmospheric mood piece that features a cool syncopated drum pattern from Matt Johnson, blurry, echoey guitars, effective dramatic pauses, like Lou was saying, and even some extra percussion and vibraphone thrown in for good measure. Buckley delivers the vocals like a man haunted by the ghost of his past, and the lyrics were directly inspired by Buckley's friend Chris Dowd of Fishbone, who was contemplating walking out on his pregnant girlfriend at the time. Buckley certainly knew the pain of abandonment as his own father, Tim Buckley, left in a similar manner, and that pain is still felt. The scars don't ever heal. With lines like, don't be the one who made me so old, don't be like the one who left behind his name, because they're waiting for you like I waited for mine, and nobody ever came. Buckley urges his friend not to do that to his unborn child, and I don't know how you can hear that and not be affected by it. The song's title does echo the Tim Buckley song Dream Letter, which I think sucks. I listened to it. That was written about Jeff. I feel like the album has to end like this with an emotional, unsettling, atmospheric closing track that takes the record out the way it came in. Do you ever hear the story of like uh, Buckley's like big like coming out to like the press and like the music industry? 
No. No. There was a, a celebration of his father's life at this place in New York City, I think called oh. St. Saint- Anne. Yes. Yeah, right, right. I did uh, read yeah. about that, and he sang at it. Yeah, he sang his father's song, I, I Never Promised to Be Your Mountain, or something like that, which is right. another song supposedly inspired by Jeff, too. And then everything just kind of blew up from there. That's where he blew hey, up, right? That's where everybody was like, holy. Buzz at his old man's funeral. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he wasn't like, allowed to go. Like, hey, hey, I'm this dude's uh, son. Yeah, but you didn't know I was. But you didn't know I existed, and nobody did. Yeah. No, yeah. this guy's story is uh, fascinating. Oh, it's fascinating and tragic, and Jesus, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Now that the track by track is over, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings for you, new listeners. The rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which jumped into the river and clearly did not know how to swim. <laughs> Ray, what are your okay. final thoughts on Grace? <laughs> oh, is this me? Um, I think anybody who's been listening this far will can pick up on. I I actually love this album. I think Buckley himself was a real musician's musician. You get this sense that he had this really intense relationship with the art form. It seems like he didn't care about the style per se, as long as it communicated something emotional and universal. Uh, and you can't deny vocally he was unique and had a real talent. Supposedly he just started out wanting to be a straight up rock guitarist before um, when he was going by the, his, the name that he was going by, which was Scott Moorhead. His actual full name is like Jeffrey Scott Buckley. It was what his birth record says. His mom remarried this guy named Moorhead, and then he just went by Scotty Moorhead forever. I mean, I suspect that this guy actually always sang, but I think later on the emphasis on the vocals came. It's like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I might as well fucking go full bore. Um, this guy knew how to sell lyrics, at least the ones I could understand. People have to remember this album came out years before America's Got Talent or American Idol. I mean, shows that really place the emphasis on vocal prowess. See William Hung or the Pants on the Ground guy, for example. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this guy was a fucking force to be reckoned with. His influence is wide sweeping as well. Jeff Beck has covered songs that he made famous and stays fairly close to the rendition that Buckley would put out there. Robert Plant and Jimmy Page both cited Grace as being a great album in the 90s. John Legend, Rufus Wainwright, Tom York, Nora Jones, Injected, fucking Katy Perry. <laughs> all li- the list goes on. Of all listed, mentioned that they've been influenced by Jeff Buckley. And I'm fairly certain that he had an influence on my idol, Ian Thornleaf of Big Wreck, which is kind of like one of the other people that kind of pointed me in the Buckley direction. This album, I think, was a game changer. The songs are great. The instrumentation is perfect. The vocals are stellar. I give this album a five every day of the week until I take the great dirt nap myself. Sam. Wow. uh, Damn, Ray. When uh, this came across, I knew that you had picked it, man. (laughs) (laughs) You did. And uh, I was appreciative of that. And uh, that made me want to dive into it a little more. And uh, because I'd heard, you know, maybe half the album on Pandora and stuff, because I listen to this type of stuff, um, there were some jewels in here that I'd never heard, like Lilac like Wine, I really love. So real, it's, eh, I don't know, but I'm going to continue to listen to this, so I appreciate it, sir. Um, and Pants on the Ground, that's my favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> on this whole thing. Man, I'll give this song, I, I don't think it's, perfect but damn it's near perfect man it really is um there's some there's nothing on here i've heard a hallelujah a million times but um there's nothing on uh, the other songs other than corpus christi that i would not listen to again and uh i'll give it a four and a half and uh i was 
I'm uh, appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Lou. Well, I never understood what the big deal about this guy was. And um, I'm still kind of wondering. Um, he's not doing anything any better than anyone else did in 94. And the Vibe Apes is better done elsewhere. He's got a good voice and the musicianship is up there. Um, there's no question about that. There isn't enough of anything really desirable enough to, to kind of grab onto and relate. I just don't give a shit about him and what, or what he's singing about. Um, I just don't feel satisfied. I will say setting an uneasy, depressing mood was his goal and more than mission accomplished. And there is an art in that. And I do appreciate it. I feel like I want to curl up and hide in bed on a cold rainy day and like cut myself after listening to this. <laughs> Dude. I, I have a feeling that he, if he didn't tragically have his life cut short, he, he would have faded away with a lot of other, the mid nineties acts that try to latch on to the alternative monitor that was so popular since a couple of years before. Eve six and kicking Harold. <laughs> Not as bad as that. <laughs> but I don't think he would have been immortalized into this tragic figure that we have today. Um, I do hear the classic influences, Freddie Mercury, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, even some cues from Pearl Jam or whoever they were getting them from at the time. A lot of the all their alternative groups, you know, the, the alt, really adult alternative groups. He was you know, kind of, they were all kind of swimming in the same stew. It's just that his particular music stew that he created all of this from and with all these influences uh, and talent just didn't shake it loose for me. I'll give it a two five. It's, it's not dog shit. I do hear the talent. I'm just not connected to it at all. And I'm glad this week is over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably never listen to this. Again. <laughs> uh, but thanks Ray for, for turning me on to it because I do appreciate it. And I do, I, I did get something out of it, but, and that said, I I'll be damned if I didn't catch myself humming so real while I was staring out my, Rainy car window <laughs> this week at a red light. I'll so take maybe that was Sam Smith and good big, good big fun or whatever the fuck that <laughs> damn band is. Like, big fat fun. What's that guy's name? Great know. big fun. <laughs> oh, you got a guy. Like he has this big freaking voice. Like they're never mind. Edit this out, sir. Please. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's hope for me and this album. Yeah. yeah. In 1975, singer-songwriter Tim Buckley died of a drug overdose, and his only biological son, known then as Scotty Moorhead, decided to take the last name Buckley and his real first name, Jeff. Jeff Buckley grew up around music. He came from a musical family, and his earliest influences were classic rock acts such as Queen, Pink Floyd, and Led Zeppelin. And he picked up the guitar at the age of five, developing quickly and absorbing more influences from the progressive rock and jazz fusion genres. After graduating high school, he spent a year in Hollywood at the Musicians Institute and spent much of the 80s as a Los Angeles session guitarist. But in 1990, he moved to New York City and eventually over time, he gained a following playing cover tunes with a few original songs sprinkled in at venues in Manhattan's East Village, where he began to get noticed by major record label executives. 
Signing to Columbia Records, Buckley assembled a band and began working on his debut album in mid-1993, rehearsing the songs and taking them to Bearsville Studios in Woodstock that September to cut basic tracks in six weeks. Buckley returned to Manhattan and spent take after take cutting overdubs in studios there in New Jersey, obsessing over every little detail and striving for sonic perfection. Through the first half of 1994, Buckley toured coffee houses, clubs, and theaters in North America and Europe, and when Grace was released that August, it received mixed critical reviews and took a while to catch on with the public. But Buckley had numerous high-profile artists who appreciated the album, such as Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, and Brad Pitt, among others. Though it never garnered much radio airplay, Grace steadily rose in stature to eventually becoming recognized as an all-time seminal work. Buckley toured the album all over the world for a year and a half, after which he began writing new material, but the recording sessions for the new songs started and stopped into early 1997 and left Buckley and the band dissatisfied. He continued to play club gigs and write and record demos, finally scheduling band rehearsals and new recording sessions, but on the evening of May 29, 1997, Buckley supposedly went spontaneously swimming fully dressed in Wolf River Harbor a channel of the Mississippi River, and disappeared into the wake of a passing tugboat. His body was found six days later, and an autopsy revealed no drugs or alcohol in his system. His death was ruled an accidental drowning. He was 30. Subsequent tributes poured in for Buckley across the musical landscape, and there have been many posthumous albums and documentaries about his life that came out, but Grace remains the only studio album released in his lifetime, and I gotta tell you, this did not immediately grab me. But I spent some time with it, and I'm glad I did because the more I listened to it, the more the tracks sunk in. For me, the key was getting Buckley's voice to click with me. He really had a unique timbre and delivery, but once that happened, the album opened up to me and I could recognize the beauty and the melodies and painful lyrics and appreciate the different musical styles Buckley borrowed from. There's a lot of space in the music that even makes the denser tracks feel lighter, almost ethereal, and at times Buckley's voice seems otherworldly, like I'm receiving messages from another plane of existence or something silly like that. Now, for me, this isn't an all-time classic just yet, but I'm going to use your words, Ray, and say that the more I let this marinate, the more I could see this rising in my personal rankings. And Ray, I do appreciate you exposing me to this. Once again, you did it to me and you've done this to me many, many times in the podcast, and I appreciate that. I give Grace a three and a half, and it's really tragic that Jeff Buckley's story got cut so short when it did. I mean, who knows what more he could have given us. And from the R4 podcast, Jeffrey Scott Buckley. Rest in peace. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Ray. And I'm Sam, the super listener. And I'm Lou. See ya. I have to take a huge, greasy shit. <laughs>
Good eye. Could you play Grace? Grace. Grace. Oh, sorry, I love Australia. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the saddest of all keys. <laughs> And revisiting this, I kept thinking to myself, when I was a little kid, um, fucking Smokey Robinson's uh, I Don't Care About Anything Else But Being With You, mm-hmm. and that uh, was a big single on, like, uh, Casey Kasem's Top 40, and I remember thinking, that's a lady singing. <laughs> that's a fuck. And then I saw him on fucking Solid Gold with Marilyn McCoo and the way yeah. Adam, and I was like, that's a dude being yeah. with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Being with you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't care what they say. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a, a woman, too, until I saw him. Even when I yeah. saw him, I still thought it was a woman. Smokey gets out from this record. Oh, this guy, the pussy. Thank you. <laughs>